0: Hello everyone and welcome back for the next episode of the Sports Pro Stream Time Podcast. My name is Chris Stone. I'm the community lead, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Nick, we are finally, it felt like it took a long time to get here in the UK, but we're really starting to get into the summer months here. And I know for me personally, Uh, The summer month always makes me think about barbecuing, and you, as an Aussie, I know you are. Your people are well known for their barbies. So, have you been getting excited? Have you been out on the grill? You know, just getting meat and fire, and just doing all those manly things. (laughs)
1: Uh, no, not yet, sadly, but it is on the to-do list. Basically, uh, the barbecue has been in hibernation through the winter and, uh, I think it's got a few things growing on it that needs to be taken care of and prepared for the summer. I uh, actually got the in-laws coming to town soon, so I'll need to get it prepared. They do like a good grilling. So <laughs> I'm talking about the barbecue sense there, obviously. Uh, so yeah, I need to get ready, but, um, shrimps on the barbie. Do you know where that came from? The Aussie, the Aussie it's obviously used quite a lot to talk about, uh, Aussies and, you know, slang. Americans love it. Do you know why?
0: No, educate me.
1: (laughs) So fun fact, it was actually started from a a television ad run in, I believe it was the eighties, um, with Paul Hogan, otherwise known as Crocodile Dundee. I know him. He's got a big knife. Yeah, he does have a big knife, (laughs) which is not suitable for cooking prawns or shrimps. Um, Another fun fact, Australians never eat shrimps, they eat prawns. And prawns are massive in Australia. They're absolutely huge. They're like 10 times the size of the ones in the UK. So throwing some prawns on the barbie, maybe. Shrimps, never done it.
0: I'm going to be honest, Nick, that kind of fits every stereotype I have about Australia, which is everything (laughs) there can kill you. So biggest alligators, biggest crocodiles, biggest great whites, biggest jellyfish. So I'm not surprised to hear the prawns you have are bigger than everybody else's (laughs) because I just assume everything in Australia can kill you. But one thing I do find really interesting, Nick, as an American from Ohio, Christmas is all about snow, Um, Mm. whereas for you, the summer's obviously backwards being on the other side of the equator. What's it like barbecuing on Christmas? Because I've never been able to do that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's really weird, actually. It's a good question. When I came over, uh, the thing is, American TV and European TV is pretty, pretty prominent in Australia. So we watch a lot of shows with, you know, those classic quintessential white Christmases and it's snowing and people are stark. And I'm like, it's 30 degrees Celsius outside. I'm going, I'm going to go to the beach and maybe cook a barbecue, which cooking a barbecue, standing in front of a hot fire when it's 30 plus degrees makes no sense. Why do people do it? I think it's just because it's, e- it's an easy, lazy thing to do. and You can clean it at a later stage or something. But uh, it's just different. It's much more relaxed. Also, what's quite funny is that – not funny, but it's interesting is that the dynamic of school holidays is our summer months in Australia are obviously different. So our, so our school holidays, the big chunky bit, runs across Christmas and New Year's. So that is the core time when most people are actually on holidays and in through the June, July, August uh, months – they're just business as usual work months, largely for Aussies. So, you do get a completely different Christmas and New Year's experience to what you get over in Europe and in the US. That's for sure. It's it's basically about being outdoors. Um, Christmas Day is is very relaxed normally. Actually, one of the biggest days of the year is actually the January the twenty sixth, which is Australia Day, which uh, is just lots of sports on TV and everyone's out the barbecuing and playing sports. Basically, that's kind of kind of it. So, yeah, very different different time of the year for Christmas uh, for us over in Australia so it took me a while it's, it's still a novelty fa- factor for me a little bit because you don't even know when you're living in Europe or the UK or or when I go to Sweden is it going to snow is it going to be a white Christmas is it not how white it going to be is it just going to be shitty and wet all those fun things to look forward to when it's uh when it comes to Christmas time
0: Yeah, well, like I said, it's something I feel like I need to experience because I, my first job when I was 14 years old was at my uncle's restaurant, it was a barbecue place. So I've been slow cooking ribs and brisket and pulled pork for a very, very long time. So the idea of, you know, sitting on my grill, setting it up at about 6am and just let it cook for 8 12 hours on christmas day maybe the premier league's on the nfl's on these days the nba's on you know just i could just imagine a a day filled with sports on the beach barbecuing. That that sounds like a pretty decent way to spend my christmas
1: it's pretty good i mean the, the prawn. back to the prawns thing i want to keep talking about <laughs> prawns um is when you buy prawns you normally buy them you know by the kilo or half a kilo kilo from from the main seafood store and they'll be Massive and you have to take all the skin and everything off them, right? The, the heads and everything. And um, what do you do with them when it's 35 degrees outside? Do you just chuck them in the bin outside to absolutely reek of fish smell. No. What you do is actually you wrap it in paper um, and uh, like a newspaper and you put it in the freezer until the day before, the night before they come to pick out the rubbish. So the smell isn't too bad because otherwise it'd be like 40, 50 degrees in the bin if it's 35 degrees outside and your whole entire neighborhood would stink of rotten prawn shells. So there you go. Tip for all those playing at home, if you're going to cook prawns in Australia, make sure you're ready to freeze the shells.
0: Well, I'm glad you guys are really considerate neighbors. You know, that's—I don't know if that's the case of everybody um, where they live and depending on what their neighbors like to cook. I mean, uh, you—you'll get hit the hardest if you don't. So, uh, it's—it is for your neighbors, but it's really for you. This is true. So that is enough talk of barbecuing food, Nick, although we are in prime season. I love to cook. But what we are going to switch over to is a masterclass. And we're actually going to hand this over uh, for a masterclass on fast channels. Now, this is something Nick, you and I have brought up on a few different podcasts over the last few weeks and months. And it's something that continues to just Seem to pop up in very interesting case studies. And, you know, we've talked about the Zone launching their women's sports channel. There's the Women's Sports Network in the US. We've had Carol Stiff talking about that. We've talked about DraftKings and what they're launching with the Fast Channel, along with some of the other people that are already active in this space. But it still seems to be a topic that isn't thoroughly understood by everybody in the industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's moving. I think it's evolving quite a lot at the moment. I start to think, uh, I was actually doing, setting, doing some work for preparing for a presentation I need to do soon where I kind of started bucketing fast into what's the role of linear and free to wear because if you think about social media you think about linear tv and you think about fast they are playing that common reach play for people who are using those platforms for for new audiences but yeah it's moving fast almost every major streaming platform is doing something in fast at the moment most of the major leagues in the US are now doing something over in that space. Viaplay have something in the UK and you're just seeing more and more and more of it. And look, obviously, Alan's going to give us a real deep dive into this, but um, there's a few different versions of what fast could and should look like. You know, there's the basic fast, which is free ad supported TV, which is living in your uh, electronic program guide in your connected TV, which is basically, sounds fancy, but basically, if you go to all the buttons, you'll see it on your smart TV if you have one. Um, That's the main form version of fast which is pre- delivered as a linear product and that's really sort of kicked off this whole conversation now that's sort of evolved into what else fast could be which alan's going to give you and, and us uh, a bit of a, a deep dive and a master class on and you know he's got he's got some pretty good uh, credibility in this space given he was the i'm going to call him the godfather of the term but i don't know if that's uh if that's what he is but there's a few godfathers of different uh things there's the god there's a the godfather of sponsorship i think that's patrick nally um I'm trying to think there's a godfather of production or broadcast. I mean, David Hill used to get, the, get some raps for being the, the the kingpin of sports broadcasting, but I think he got himself into trouble a few years later, so I'm going to leave that one. But anyway, uh, he he coined the phrase and he's really a leading voice in this space and definitely wants someone you should follow uh, through his respective channels on social and the like.
0: And I think the other reason to tune in and listen to this, and Alan does talk about it in his presentation, is what Fast represents for the non-premium sports channels. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you can think of sports media broadcast as a pie, and there's only so much money to go around, which – you know, broadcasters, platforms are going to be willing to pay for that. Fast now offers an opportunity for some of those sports that aren't necessarily getting a cut of that pie to still get an audience for reach. And, you know, they get some of that ad share that comes with that. And it's just opening up a new way for those sports to go out there. So, you know, it's one of those things, you know, Alan does talk about it. Probably unlikely to see the NFL go and have a full-blown live sports channel uh, of having live games from the NFL. But it's an incredible opportunity for some of those smaller sports that can't get on to a linear schedule. And I really think that's probably the reason to really be looking at fast as well for those that are trying to figure out how do I possibly compete with those sports markets?
1: Uh, absolutely. I think that's the that's the, the play, really. Um, I have to say, like uh, it's anecdotal, but we've talked a lot about discoverability. And I turned on my TV the other day. I've got a Samsung TV. Uh, happened to just pop up with the Samsung set of channels, the EPG. And the first channel that popped up was my the last time the last channel that I was watching, which was the Viaplay one. And there was some La Liga um, content being broadcast. And I ended up watching that. And then something to do with mountaineering, I think, if I remember correctly. Never would have watched it otherwise. And that is why free-to-air content is so valuable for sports. But let's um, maybe let Alan sort of talk through the benefits and how the business works because he's the best in the business.
0: Absolutely. So do stay around for the second part of the episode as Alan takes you through his masterclass on everything you need to know about fast channels.
2: We're going to talking about what is a fast. Um, as some of you may know, I am actually the guy who came up with the term fast. It was Not an intentional thing. Um, Back in 2018, we were trying to think of a way to distinguish between Hulu, which was a paid streaming ad-supported service, and Pluto, which was a free ad-supported streaming service, (laughs) wrote that ad and said, oh, that smells fast. Put it out there. Um, We always put goofy terms out. We used to call the... Flick Fast and Flicks is because none of them had names at the time. So it was Disney Flicks and HBO Flicks and whatnot. But Fast took off and here we are. So I want to start off with what is a Fast um in terms of the nomenclature, because that's a huge, huge issue. So let me step back for a second. TV Rev, my company, um, is an analyst firm. We do reports on the topic. We consult with companies. We have a newsletter that has comes out three times a week. It has 55,000 subscribers. It's free. We have a website as well. Um, and so... One of the things when we do consulting that we find is that there is massive confusion around the nomenclature and the terminology that people use. Um, Avod in particular trips people up because some people use it to mean only on demand, some people use it to mean any ad supported thing and it's sort of slipping out of favor. So what we have found is that you can pretty much break the world of streaming into two buckets, free and not free. And within each of the buckets, there are is both linear and on-demand. Now, people talk about fast channels a lot. Fast channels are a thing, but that also dismisses the fact that all of the big fast services have huge on-demand libraries that they make a lot of money from and get a lot of viewing on. At the same time, what we've been seeing is that the subscription services have said, hey, this is pretty brilliant. People seem to like watching linear. We've got these massive libraries and given that we're all running advertising now, we want people to stay on the platform longer, we're going to start this too. And you already see that Peacock, Paramount Plus, and Discovery Plus have linear channels as well. So point being the term fast channel is going to go away because it's all just going to be channels because the linear services will have their own channels. And we'll get to in a minute how channels are actually sort of, sort of vary a lot depending on who they belong to and which service you're talking about. But let's get into the whole, how this whole ecosystem is set up because it is really pretty confusing to people who are not super familiar with it and even those who are. So at the top level, you have the gatekeepers, which are the smart TVs and connected devices. And that's something you don't have in regular TV. Maybe the MVPDs play the same role, but these guys basically get to determine whether it's Roku or Vizio or Samsung what apps go on their platform, what order they're in, how easy it is to find them, and all that. So they're the ones who really kind of have that first level of control. Okay, beyond that, you've got the aggregator apps. And the aggregator apps fall into a couple of categories. But basically, they're the ones who take content from a whole bunch of places and put them together and put them out. So you've got three groups of aggregator apps, because like I said, this is not, this is complicated. So the first group is the media company apps, and those are like Pluto and Tubi, Zumo, sort of Peacock, sort of not Peacock, because they've stopped offering the free version. And the advantage is that they, the biggest advantage these guys have is that they have unique content from the parent company, um, and they're able to create this sort of flywheel effect with the subscription services, and they're available on multiple devices. Now I'm gonna stop here because these guys all have linear channels, but they love the notion that they can curate stuff, right? They come from media companies where curation is a big deal. And for the most part, when people get, you know, when they started off, they just, you know, they would take a channel lock, stock and barrel from whoever's giving to them. But right now they're very into curation. And it means that sort of a sci-fi channel on Pluto is gonna be very different from a sci-fi channel on Tubi from Zumo and, you know, and across the board. And they're really only taking stuff whole from big companies like Zone or AMC. Sports is sort of its own thing because sports is live. So, of course, they're going to take it. But they may also try and aggregate, you know, sort of combine a bunch of smaller sports into different channels. So... That's, you know, and they're good at it, and they feel that that's their point of differentiation because with cable, you wanted everybody you, know, you wanted everybody to have the same thing, because cable, especially in the US, is very geo-specific, whereas these guys are all competing against each other, so if their interface can be better, they all often cite Spotify, and especially something called Rap Caviar on Spotify. Rap Caviar is a curated channel that Spotify put together that sort of become a thing in that industry, and you know, it's, it's if you're on it, it's pretty cool. And so they're like, yeah, we want to do this—the rap caviar for, for streaming. We want our curation to be the th- reason that people come here. Um, so the next, and oh, and they can, also they can sell advertising across their streaming and their fast services. That's something, say, Paramount does with IQ. Um, They sell it across Pluto and Paramount Plus. The next grouping are the OEM apps. So you've got Samsung TV Plus, Vizio Watch Free Plus, LG Channels, the Roku Channel, Amazon Freebie. And they come pre-installed on the device, and this is key. They're sort of the home screen, other than Roku, they're sort of the home screen for the device. So you turn on a Samsung TV or Vizio TV, and what do you see? You see there fast. You know, you can get to Netflix and Amazon and everything else, but that gives them an additional revenue stream too because they can then sell tiles to Netflix and Amazon to say, hey, watch our shows. And they also bring you into their own shows because that's what shows up on the home screen, and it's their way of sort of controlling that user experience. The other thing also that I was talking about, and they also have the ability to access their own ACR data. So ACR is automatic content recognition. It basically takes a few pixels from the screen, matches it to a database from a company called CCR Media, and sees. so it knows all the time what you're watching, and they know what you're watching on linear and on streaming, so it helps them sell advertising within their little ecosystem. There's also independent apps like, um, like Crackle and Plex, those have their own advantages in that they all, you know, they're independent, they're not beholden to anybody, they can be a little bit more creative. So the next level down is this thing. This is a map by my friend Evan Shapiro. He makes incredible maps. Um, is this whole ecosystem. Um, there's all these independent apps too, right? There's all these apps that are, we call them single source apps. So whether it's a news app like Cheddar or different sports apps, Bloomberg, news apps, different things like that, where they all have their own app. But then they also, which makes it really confusing, they also sell their content to the aggregators, who may put them on there as their own channel, flock, stock, and barrel, but most often aggregate them with other service, other content of the same kind, and these guys are slowly but surely, we're seeing giving up on having their own independent app. It's a hassle. It's gonna be updated across a lot of devices. Not all of them, but a lot of, a lot of them are. It's also confusing for advertisers. Like with, say, take Cheddar. Am I buying advertising on Cheddar, the, its own app? Am I buying it on Cheddar on Pluto? Where is it showing up? So it's, this ecosystem is gonna contract around all of the aggregator apps. So we talk about advertising on the fast too, because that's obviously how they make their money. And there's a lot of issues. It's it's basically a giant clusterfuck right now, but it's getting better. So one of the biggest issues is, is a lack of standardization. If you're used to buying television advertising, this just doesn't this you know there's no standardization on measurement on anything. Sorry about that. There's a complete lack of transparency. In other words. Nothing actually, you, no one knows where their shows or where their ads are running. See, so if I buy an ad on NBC, I know exactly what show, what pod, what position in the pod it runs on, on on any of the fast services, yeah, it ran on the Roku channel, when? Last week. And that's because a lot of the buying is done from a digital, pro, you know, open programmatic sort of basis where... It didn't really matter where it ran so long as it reached the audience, but the big TV advertisers don't really care about that. Um, Measurement is also a mess. Um, A lot of times it's self-reported. There's no Nielsen. There's no easy way to know, know where your ads are going. Over frequency, I'm sure many of you have experienced this yourselves, where you see the same ad four times within the same show, occasionally back to back that's because the ads are all sold by different different companies by different DSPs and SSPs they don't talk to each other also they don't have enough a lot of times they don't have enough inventory and finally you know there's there's a lot of issues around privacy and data if i give somebody permission to you know to track me what i'm watching on tv does that mean my whole family did as well how do you know what do you do with you know how, how do you actually track track the data how do you make it so it's not super creepy the way a lot of internet ads are. So those are all the issues. Now, there's something that's happening on the fast now that we're seeing is sort of solving a world of hurt. It's contextual advertising. What is contextual is sort of old school. It's basically running ads, you know, against a certain type of programming as opposed to, a certain demographic, and that's a big thing. That's going to be great for sports because people want to reach sports fans. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to sort of have first party data sets. It's like, yeah, we want to watch. We want to reach people who like t- watching track events. We want want to watch reach football fans. Boom, and then you solve all those other issues. You solve the transparency issue because they can tell you when it ran. Measurement because there's da- you know data attached to how many people wa- how many TVs were turned on to the show solves privacy issues and reach. So reach is another big one here. Um, There's this sort of myth in, you know, that we've actually just heard it downstairs, that everybody on streaming wants to reach a targeted audience. Now there are brands that do, especially DTC brands, but the really big brands, the brands that spend hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't really care. They want reach. They just want to reach as many people as possible. You talk to any of the you know any food brand, Pepsi's McDonald's, our audience is everyone with a mouth. You know, ATT, our audience is anyone with an ear. They want to reach, and and they feel too that if they reach somebody who's not in their intended demo, it's not the end of the world. If if you have a sports car that's aimed at young men, and an old woman sees it, maybe she has a grandson, maybe she has a, a coworker who bought the car, and she'll say something nice about it. That's good for them. If you're Mercedes or a luxury car brand, you want to hit people twenty years before they'll be able to afford one, so that they have twenty years to build up that desire for it. So. They really want that sort of reach that they get on traditional TV on fast. So now I'm gonna go, I'm I'm rushing, we have 20 minutes. I I could go for three hours on this, but so the predictions of what, what do we see happening over the next while? So one of the biggest ones is that fast is going global. Everybody has sort of figured out that streaming, you know, streaming is going global. And in much of the world, in all these emerging economies, People don't have money to pay for subscriptions, right? I mean, you know, or they can pay like fifty cents, twenty-five cents, but mostly they don't have the money to pay for it. And so, as a result, everybody's going to have to do fast, going from you know the Netflix and Amazon all the way down to local local broadcasters, because you know there's billions of people in these markets you can who want to watch the content. And if you want to dominate that market, you're going to have to go with free or almost free. Um, Kevin Mayer, before we were talking about Hotstar in India, yeah, they have, they have a free service. They also have something that's like, you know, equivalent of $5 a year US. And that, you know, in addition to having cricket, that's why they have such a massive market, because in most of these countries, there's a small percentage of the population that can afford, you know, this stuff, but for the most part, not. So FAST is going global. We're seeing it, we just did a report on, two reports on the FAST, I'll put up a link after we got downloads from 52 different countries. So, you know, and and we're a a U.S. publication. So clearly there's an interest. The next part is a flywheel effect. And this is something, you know, on all of these subscription services, where they're going to, they're going to start using fast to promote their content on a subscription service and back, you know, and back and forth. It's a way of keeping people within the ecosystem and whether that's, you know, an MVPD, whether that's a subscription service, whether that's a linear network, it's a way to keep people in there. And it's a way to understand sort of, you know, to promote content that you want people to watch. So it maybe something like, you know, two episodes from two or three years out, people will still watch it. So there's a lot of, so Paramount does an amazing job of this with Pluto TV, where they take it and they promote the shows from Paramount+. Plus. On Pluto, they give enough episodes to sort of tease people into it, and we think that's going to be a huge usage use case. Um, there's also the move to quality. So for a long time, the fast you know, especially in the beginning, the fast would just take anything. And that's led to a bunch of problems. Um, with a lot of the services, Roku in particular gets dinged for this, where they've got everything from network reruns and originals to Susie's yoga studio that her sister shoots on her iPhone. And ads go up against all of them. So there's been a move now to sort of get better quality stuff, to sort of not have stuff that almost feels like UGC, to start doing originals. Um, you know, Roku, Amazon are doing originals. Um, there 's exclusive content too, where people get it you know you have it for the first six months, but overall what's what is available on the fast is a lot better than it was two years ago in terms of content. Another thing, um, which is why you 're all here, is sports on the fast now for the fast you 're not going to get the NFL or NBA, but there 's a ton of niche sports that don 't really have anywhere to go. I always tell people, look at flow sports right Flow sports has all of these niche sports, and none of them have a you know a home on traditional TV. So an easy example of this is Pluto TV broadcast the CrossFit games last year. They did really well with it. Um, that's a very dedicated audience. There's natural advertisers for it. It's something that people really want to see. There's smaller N- you know, NCAA conferences. There's sports from other countries. Those all have a natural home on the fast, and for the fast services themselves, for the these big these aggregator apps, whether it's Watch Free Plus or Pluto, it's a way for them to bring in this audience because you know they they need to start differentiating themselves from each other. They compete with each other, so if they have this sports, fa- you know, fans come in to watch, there's also a chance that they'll see the other stuff they have there. Stick around, develop loyalty. The other thing with sports is really interesting: is that there's a feeling, there's a a lot of a sizable portion that's very important to advertisers are people who don't really see ads. They pay for the ad-free subscription version of every service they have. They have ad blockers on their browsers. And the only place they're going to see ads is during a live sporting event. So they will be a very valuable audience going forward. And especially a lot of them will be attracted to the sort of more niche sports that the big streaming services are not going to want or have money to pay for. Now budgets are shifting. I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly too. So what we in our last report, we talked about how ad budgets, and I'll have some some stats up there, but basically, you know, premise that faster than new cable. So what's what's gonna happen is in the next two years, as Netflix and Disney and HBO build up their ad supported subscription version, all of these big advertisers, the people who spend nine, you know, nine digits who just want reach, right? They're going to go, oh, okay, now I get it. So Netflix and Disney are like primetime and the fast are like cable. Now I get it. Now I'll start moving my money. We're going to start seeing some of it in 2024 through political advertising. It's really going to be 25 and 26 where we'll start to see big shifts that correspond to the shift in viewership. Over there too, but it will be easy for them to sort of go. Okay, so you know, SVOD is prime time, faster cable, and the truth is, about two thirds of spending on advertising now, you know, in the old days went to cable versus prime time. So the faster do to see a huge bump in ad spending, which is just going to sort of lift all boats on them. Um, So you can sort of see, you don't really need to read the numbers so much, but just the blue is cable and the yellow is fast. So you can see from 2023 to 2027 how that shift is going to happen. And then the same thing, streaming versus linear. Right now it's predominantly linear, which is the red. By 2027, it's going to move more and more to streaming. Again, just because that's where viewership is going, and because there'll be a home for it, there hasn't been as much inventory as people wanted. Now there will be, and then this is, and then within the fast versus SVOD universe, the one unknown is sports. So, if a lot of sports rights that are traditionally on linear TV now. Go to the SVOD servers. If it's Apple and Amazon, and whatnot, get sports. We'll see more, slightly more money going to, you know, to the SVOD because people will spend on sports there as opposed to the fast. But, there will also be sports on fast for people to watch. So instead of a say, instead of a sixty-seven thirty-three split, it might be closer to 60, 40 or 55, 45, depending on how much sports and also the nature of it. Is it going to be a deal like Apple has where it has to be with baseball, where it has to be free, even if you know you just have to download the app or will they be able to charge for it? So there's, there's just a lot of things to watch out for over the next year or two. So I'm going to, now we have to, a few minutes, hopefully for questions.
3: So we've got a few questions popping up on Slido. So yeah, remember, please, guys, if you want to ask a question, please put on the platform. But it's because it's quite a small room, I could come up here with a mic and you can put your hand up. So Alan, top one. What type of content works well for a fast channel? Are some sports more suited than others?
2: Um, Well, in terms of of content, it's funny, movies and news are actually among the more popular content on, on various fests. And again, it's not... Standing up a fast channel, they, you know, they curate that stuff. News is different. Um, in terms of sports, it's really anything that's going to have a dedicated fan base that doesn't get an opportunity to watch it on TV. So that was my Flow Sports reference. Mm. Flow has all these things like wrestling and track and field and women's field hockey and, and whatnot that, you know, they're really the only place you can watch games. And there, there is a dedicated fan base for all these things. And as you realize, like, Major League Baseball has 182 games a year. They're two to three hours apiece. How many people are going to be watching that versus watching sort of, you know, smaller things and also all the shoulder content around sports, whether it's, you know, interviews with players, things like that, you know, recaps, oh. so that, that's going to be huge.
3: Brilliant. Um, second question, can fast channels convert free users into paying subscribers?
2: Probably. Well, that was that sort of flywheel thing I was talking yeah. about where – companies that have a, free, a fast service and also a subscription service will use the fast service to convert subscribers. They will show, last you know, say HBO might show this year's version of White Lotus and The Last of Us next year to get people to say, oh, I want now I've seen this for free, now I wanna watch the current one. It was just what AMC used to do with Netflix years ago where they would put Walking Dead and Breaking Bad on and then people went back, watched it on Netflix and then went back to AMC. Nice, does
3: anyone wanna ask a question for the audience here?
2: Hey Alan, um, so with fast channels being a bit sort of like disparate and it's hard to have consistency across all of them, yeah. For some sports leagues, they want reach and that discoverability. What do you think happens or how long does it take for a fast channel to, for at least for an
0: advertiser
2: and maybe for a league also, replicate the reach that comes from cable or broadcast in that environment? Well, it depends. For a smaller sport, ideally, they have ways to get you to get the word out there to fans of the sport. Say say it was track and field competition. There's a group of hardcore track and field fans and they promote it to those people. And then ideally you get, you know, Brooks and Saucony running ads on it. Like that's the beauty of a lot of these niche sports is that there's advertisers that are sort of obvious fits for it. You know, we always use HGTV as, a, as an example. It's obviously not a sport. But if you watch, like, any of these home shows, Lowe's and Home Depot and, you know, Sherwin-William-Paint run ads during it, and it's like, well, of course they do because it's a, you know, I'm fixing up a house and, you know, paint just makes sense.
3: Great. Well, there's an interesting one just popped up at the bottom from Anonymous. Um, do you see the move to quality for fast channels being driven more by gatekeepers creating or survival of the fittest?
2: Um, it's a little of both, but there's certainly more gatekeepers curating. Um, they're all trying to get advertisers. They know that advertisers don't like when their ads because a lot of the stuff is sold in some form of programmatic, whether it's direct programmatic or open programmatic and whatnot. Um, but they don't like the fact that their ads are running, you know, they're paying for TV. They want TV and their ads are running against stuff that they don't think is very good. So the, the gatekeepers are certainly pushing on that fantastic we've got a couple more minutes so maybe
3: two more questions um do you, well is, this, is it inevitable that the smaller and single sport channels need to merge to aggregate
2: um probably just because there's unless they have enough programming to sort of you know fill something 24 7 or not not be boring um you know it, de- it depends what it is and, and how and how many matches there are and you know and and how much audience desire there is to watch older matches over and over again. Mm. But for the most part, I I think a lot of them will need, you know, to sort of group together, obviously in in a way that makes sense. You're not gonna probably put, you know, track and lacrosse together but you know there's certain Mm. sports that kind of makes might make more sense going together
3: nice and we've got two likes at the top so i'll ask this one who are the fast ecosystem stakeholders i think you covered that a little bit in your presentation and how does each ad dollar get sliced
2: up amongst them that is a very good question because the answer is it really depends who negotiated the deal at this yeah. at this point. You know, it was all brand new. People would go into a room. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it'd be a 50-50 split. Sometimes they'd say, yeah, you got 5% and, and everything in between. For the most part, the people who own the rights do get something. They've negotiated it. Um, but the, the actual number has yet to standardize or even almost close to standardize.
0: Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime podcast.